0: This evening we are recording a study in the Epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. And it is our custom at this period to read a portion of Scripture together. And those of you who are listening to this recording may like to share this. If so, you switch off for a while and read with us 2 Corinthians, chapters 8 and 9. Those two chapters give an extraordinary insight into the mentality of the Apostle Paul. Tremendous lot woven into this suggestion that the Corinthians had promised a year ago to share in this contribution, and he was very, very desirous that they should not be let down in their own eyes nor in the eyes of others. But it's not possible for a man of his caliber to speak merely about a connection for the saints, without also linking it with a greater gift. Do you notice how he uses the same words in in the 8th chapter, the 2nd verse, that he repeats presently of Christ? He says in the 2nd verse, how that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. Poverty abounding unto riches. Well then presently he comes to Verse 9, for ye you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. That's a four-line touch, linking the little gifts of God's people with the great gift of God. And then he says in verse 16 of the same chapter, but thanks be to God. And there he's speaking about the care of Titus over them and the way in which they reacted. Presently we're going to get it again at the end of the next chapter. Thanks be to God, not to Titus, or for Paul, or for money. Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. So you see, there was the man, you start, you start urging them to send a little contribution to the poor saints at Jerusalem, and he ends up by speaking about a gift which is unspeakable. Well that's how it should be. There's one little point too I think we should all be uh, thankful for. You notice his extraordinary care in chapter 8. He says, whoever it is you've chosen to travel with me with this money, I'm going to accept him without demur. I want to provide for things honest in the sight of the Lord and in the sight of men. And there's a most necessary need for any of us who can handle money in connection with the Lord's work, that that should be always maintained. I always wish that folks at the end of a meeting after I've given an hour of my time and the mind's all busy round like a lot like of clock wheels, they wouldn't come up to me and say, they don't say this, but some say, well, just to save me the bother of sending my contribution through to Mr. Catney through the post, would you give it to him? And there I'm landed with money, and i forgot who the man's name is or anything, I've got a job, oh, such a business round, you see. And there I am put into that position. I want to provide things in, honest in the sight of all men. And sometimes I don't know what to do with the money. So will you take a hint? Yes, please. You don't have to do it here, but oh, I wish I could give that hint to some people. I suppose they're very tricky people, but they're taking it out of me instead. But there it is. Uh, the the idea of providing things honest to the side of all men is something which I think we do well to value. But still, we leave that now and take up our study, of which this is a reflection, in Ephesians chapter 2. The first is which are under our notice for the moment, on Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 10. Only three verses are proposed to read. For by grace are ye saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. That's the shortest section in the Holy Epistle. But you mustn't judge the Apostle wrongly in this. If he were enlarging on this great Gospel, if he were out to teach what this Gospel is, he'd fill the Holy Epistle with it. But he was writing to those who were saved. He was writing to those who had believed. He was writing to those who knew the Savior. But he cannot refrain from putting that in just to remind them. In the same way, this great champion, if we may use the word, of justification by faith, he practically doesn't give you an exposition of that in Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, or Second Timothy, because he already knows it's the basis upon which you build. But he does take one opportunity of slipping in a little summary of it, as you remember, in Philippians, chapter 3. Here is a masterly summary of the essential feature of justification by faith, Philippians 3, verse 9, and be found in him, not having by no righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. And by the time you've examined every one of those lines in that verse, you'll be sent back over and over again to the epistle to the Romans to get it filled out. So we don't think that the apostle is devoted three verses in this chapter 2 to salvation by grace because he didn't think much of it. It's because he had made such an exposition of it and there's no possibility of anybody believing if he's in truth who hasn't already reached this that he can speak so quickly of it. Now another feature in connection with the balance of truth is this and it's also useful to remember that when we get the whole structure of the epistle the section which balances this has to do with the walk. And it occupies chapter 5 and a part of chapter 6. It's the longest section in the epistle. The shortest section tells you, by grace you're saved, and the longest one says, now don't walk in harmony with it. So the apostle hasn't forgot it, all the way through chapter 5 and halfway through chapter 6. He's still got his eye on the salvation which you have, and wondering whether you're walking in those good works which God hath before ordained that you should so do. You will remember, won't you? Another feature, that each one of these sections in Paul's epistle to the mm. Ephesians has a threefold element about it. Now, if you haven't spotted that, just let me go over what we've already looked at. Ephesians 1, verse 3 to 14. The will of the Father before the foundation of the world. The work of the Son here in this world, the Redeemer. The witness of the Spirit seeding unto the day of redemption. One, two, three. Then following that comes the great prayer, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, that's one thing, what the riches of the glory, that's another thing, what the greatness of his power, that's the third thing, one, two, three. And then we have the threefold exaltation of Christ, followed by the threefold echo in the believer, quickened together with him, raised together with him, seated together, one, two, three. Well now we're going to have one, two, three again in this section. You see, not of works. We are his workmanship, created unto works. There's the three. And by the time we've got these works in the right place, we've got practically the teaching of this section. But well, when it says by grace ye are saved, the apostle has used a form of speech which makes it almost a title. You are those that are sort of uh, nominated as having been saved. It's not merely you are saved, you, you are those having been saved. It's looking back to a past work. Do remember, friends, that while your faith may ebb and flow, and while you may be very conscious how far you come short of the standard that God sets in his word, you are not saved because of your faith, And you're not saved because of anything you've done. You're saved because Christ died for the ungodly and he did that 1,900 years ago. And the moment you trust in him, you pass from death unto life and you can never go back again. You may be a poor specimen, but you're not saved because you're a good specimen. You're saved because you were ungodly and couldn't save yourself. By grace, you are among those who have been saved. Whatever we have here, a problem that has exercised the minds of some of God's people. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. There is such a thing as a gift of faith. You could read it in 1 Corinthians 12. I think we ought to look at it to see the context. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 9. But suppose if we look back. It says in verse 6, There are diversities of operations, and it is the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, the gifts of healing by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. Well, you see, this is all put in a r- miraculous context. This particular faith is not the faith that you had when as a poor, seeking sinner, hardly knowing A from B in the Bible, you put your trust in Christ. That was not the same line as having a gift of faith which can move mountains and so on. Should we think of an example which some of you May remember the name of George Muller. George Muller was a believer in Christ, a Christian. And then, he had it laid upon him to demonstrate to the Christian world that faith in God worked. So he asked for the gift of faith. He was already a believer. And then he founded the orphanage. And had about a thousand children without their breakfast next morning. And yet, God never failed him. But you see, if I started to do that, those poor children almost likely it's after to death because I haven't got that gift of faith It's not been made upon me to do. So there is a gift of faith. And that's an exceptional thing then to to an individual person. But if you come to this passage and say, by that particular faith that you're saved, you'll be wrong. We're not saved in that way. We are saved by a simple act of trust in the finished work of Christ, which is not a gift. Not the gift of wisdom and the gift of knowledge and the working of miracles and so on. So let's come back again. For by grace are ye saved. There's no doubt about grace. The apostle has given a definition of grace, which I think we ought to be familiar with, in the epistle to the Romans, which reads like this: verse six, Romans 11, verse six. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. So far as the Apostle is concerned, these will not mix like oil and water. If it's grace, it cannot be of works. And he puts it the other way around, that if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. They are diametrically opposed. If you're saved by grace, you haven't earned it. That's all he said. But he said, if you want to talk about earning... I'll refer you to what I said in Romans 6. The wages of sin is death. Let's be glad for the gift of God instead of wages. So he says, by grace are you saved. But now he says, this grace and this salvation is through faith. So notice that the word faith comes after grace. It's through faith. Grace is the actual cause of salvation. Faith is the instrumental cause, or, as you may put it, it's the hand that receives it. It's the hand that takes it. It doesn't originate it. A person who falls in the canal and grabs a rope that's thrown to him, he may say, I was saved by that rope. Well, you may say, yes, friend, so you were. But if he took it home and made a little eyebrow of it, and said, oh, what a lovely rope that saved me, you might remind him that somebody was at the other end of that rope, Otherwise the rope would have perhaps helped to strangle him. It was a man on the back that saved him, and the grabbing of the rope was only the instrument that lifted him out. So my faith would never save me if Christ isn't the other end of it. My faith has got nothing. You need to commend me to God. My faith doesn't put away my sin. So, by grace are you saved, the sheer act of God's mercy through faith. Now we come to the words that have caused the trouble. And that not of yourselves; it is the gift of God. There are those who, from this passage, teach that it is utterly useless to preach the gospel to anybody in the terms of an invitation. There was a friend who visited the Wednesday meeting about a fortnight ago, who is responsible for a work out here in the East Counties, and I know from what has been told me. That if the preacher there were to dare to say, will anyone in this congregation put their trust in Christ, he'd lose his job. You must do that. Because faith is the gift of God. And if God doesn't give you faith, you'll never be saved. horrible sort of prospect, isn't it? You see, you get in John's Gospel. This is the condemnation. That light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds are evil. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth upon him. Supposing we say, He that has never been given faith by God, and it's been withheld from him by these decrees, the wrath of God abideth on him. You so say that's a funny way to put it, isn't it? Don't you see friends, we're mixing things up a bit? I believe that the Scripture teaches that faith is the simplest possible thing that anybody can be asked to do. It's only because of our sin that cuts across it, that makes it difficult and needs the aid of the Spirit of God. John puts it like this in his first epistle. If we believe men, and oh we do, don't we? Otherwise we never be able to live at all. says, if we believe men, Surely it's easier still to believe God. If God be God, then the simplest possible thing is to say, well, He's trustworthy, I believe Him. So don't let us make a difficulty about faith. I've been in places where there have been someone interviewing a young person who is seeking salvation. And they go through parts of scripture. And the young person says, Oh yes, oh yes, I believe it. Oh, saying, oh, 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 oh. oh, you mustn't jump to it so quick as that. Now we'll have a word of prayer. And by the time they're done, the poor young thing goes home and thinks, Oh, what a terrible thing. Oh, I can never do this. It's made such a formidable obstacle. They don't know whether they're standing on their head or not. If anyone accepts that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, he passes from death unto life, even though he cannot define his terms. But after that comes the growth in grace, and the knowledge of truth, and the walking worthy of it. And God has not given us a difficult thing to do, to make a handicap. He's given us the simplest possible thing we can do, is to turn around and believe what he says. I don't think he could do any more, because even we can't do anything with anybody who won't believe what we say. You try. You see? Well now, what about this gift of God? Well here we have to have a little bit of grammar coming in again. Of course, you're getting to realise that grammar wasn't invented by someone to make the life of schoolboys miserable. It can do. It did with one schoolboy that's speaking to you. I learned lists of things that I can repeat now. Am I, is I, was, was, were, were, do, doth, did, that, be. why well, I did it. That was, the, that was the thing I didn't know. I wish I did. I, I believe I could make grammar live to some of these children in the school. But of course, it's a bit beyond me now. But look, in the Greek language, not like our language, the word that has to agree in number, gender and case with the one which it's related with. You see? I, I can't be misled when I'm reading the Greek New Testament. This word that is in the New neuter. And the word faith is a feminine word. Now again, here's a puzzle. Here's a difficulty. It doesn't mean to say that only women believe. You see, this is a convention. There are some words which are called masculine and some words that are called feminine. It's so in the French language, isn't it? La table. A table is feminine. But not a female. You see the difference? And there are some who built a wrong doctrine on this because they say, Ecclesia, the church, is feminine. Therefore, it's the bride. Well, I turn around and say, carefully: the head, is feminine, therefore Christ is a female. You see? No meaning in it at all, they're mixing up gender and sex. No. Well, now, then I've got a neuter word, that. And people have tapped it onto a feminine word, faith. Well, they've done wrong then. So what am I going to do with this? I can't possibly ignore the rules of grammar, not to, not to serve my own ends. All that I can do is to say this. That scheme of salvation, which is by grace, and through faith, and not of works, that is the gift of God. Now that's not paralyzing anybody. That's not preventing anybody. That's simply telling you that here's something entirely different from the law that was given from Moses. The law given from Moses was a gift of God. The gospel has, has been given. That's a gift of God. But it doesn't say that the individual faith which a person exercises is the gift of God, because there's sure to come the thought in the back of the mind, well, as everybody doesn't believe, and some are going to be condemned, then it will turn out ultimately that unless God gives me faith, I shall never be saved, and if he doesn't give it to me, all my seeking and crying and wondering about it will never end it. And it makes you the fatalists. So I say, friends, watch that step. Otherwise we should do despite the truth. So now we have before us this faith. For by faith you are saved through faith. And that, that seed, It can't be anything else. It's not of yourselves. It didn't originate with you. What is it? then? It is the gift of God. Well now we know that um, the word gift is used in many parts of scripture when it's referring to God's love and the way of salvation. The one that comes to the mind of everyone, however little they know of scripture, is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And as I think I pointed out to you, but I'll mention it again, that word so in John 3.16 although you may think you're being robbed for a moment, it doesn't mean how vast it is. The word is translated thus in chapter 4, when our Saviour sat so, thus, upon a well. Same gospel. Now, John 3.16 says, God so loved the world like this, that he gave his only begotten Son. You see? Oh, it's unspeakable, the gift, but that's the point. It's like this, after this matter. gift. So we're prepared. Then we get, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Gift. Oh, it comes over and over again, doesn't it? We have in um, the epistle to the Ephesians, the verb, to give, comes twelve times. Twelve times. Here we get, in the Ephesians 4, verse 8, one way in which the word is Given in this epistle, wherefore he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive, and gave gifts unto me. Now those gifts were not the gifts of miracles; they were the gifts of apostles and prophets and evangelists, pastors and deacons, a new order of gifts. And then we, that is one word. I'm not bothering to pronounce all these different words because uh, you, if you're not acquainted with them you'll spell them wrong, and you won't be able to find them, and if you need to be uh, further acquainted with these things, well then it means looking for yourself, and you'll discover the spelling. But here's another word, another, they're all from the same root. And the root for this, all these words is the word D-O. D-O. And that comes in the Latin as well. D-O, a donation, comes right through into our own language. Now there's another one there in chapter 3, 7. Wherefore I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me. Now you see, this is twisting it round. Salvation is by grace, because it's the gift of God. Now he says, in service I have a gift by the grace of God, the other way round. Gift after say after salvation. And chapter 4, verse 7, the same word, but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. He's speaking here about service. And each one of us are given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. And then we get the measure of the perfect man and the measure in verse 16 of every part doing its share. But that's a future study. But what about this particular word that we've in chapter 2? It is the gift of God. Is that just the same? No, friends. We are beginning to be prepared, aren't we, in this epistle to the Ephesians, to find some things which are outstanding, never again to be mentioned, or never to be used in exactly the same way. You remember, we have chosen in him before the foundation of the world. No other company in the New Testament thus chosen. That's unique. We have blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. That's said of no other company. That's unique. They are said to be accepted in the beloved. And that word accepted was only once elsewhere spoken. And that in an extraordinary position. The angel, Gabriel, said those words to the Virgin Mary. Although in our version it doesn't say accepted. It says there, thou art highly favoured. So what a position we're in. Highly favoured in the beloved. These things that stand out in Ephesians as unique. Or again, in chapter 2, seated together. Nowhere else in the whole range of the New Testament do we get such a statement applied to any believer. Seated together. Where Christ sits, at the right hand of God. So we're prepared, possibly, to discover but now we're going to have a, another use of a word, gift. This word is, I will tell you this word, is doron. D-O-R-O-N. And it is the equivalent and the translation of the word korbe. You remember in the Gospels, I think it's in Mark's Gospel, where uh, the Lord was rebuking some who were uh, withholding a contribution to their aged parents, because they put their hands together and lifted their eyes to heaven and said, Oh, I'm so sorry, I can't give you a gift, dear father and mother, but all I possess are given to God. Like that, you see. And as you hypocrites, you're saying it is called that. See? Well, that's a word. This is a word that means some special aspect of gift. Now, it occurs 20 times in the New Testament. 20 times, and 19 out of those times, it is the gift made by men to God or to one another. Always that direction. It's always the man that makes the gift, 19 times, and God orders it the order around completely in this, it's God making the gift. You see, it's unique again. Let's be sure about this. Chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 2 verse 11. Here we have the first occurrence of this word this particular aspect of the word gift. You'll realize the context the moment we get to Matthew 2 and we have in verse 11 these words. And when they were come into the house they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You imagine, that word is used in Ephesians, of God doing it to me and you. These men came with their gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, and they worshipped him to whom they offered those gifts. It's almost unbelievable, isn't it, that it's God that comes out and makes an oblation to me. In the gift of the gospel, I'm not giving him anything. This is the first occurrence. Let's look again at another passage, Matthew five, twenty-three. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, it's still a gift which is being brought as an act of worship. If thou bring thy gift to the altar and rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Gift, gift, gift at an altar. Well, I've got no altar. I've got one to be worshipped. But that word gift that was brought to the altar is what God has brought to me. This is almost unbelievable, isn't it? If it weren't written, you wouldn't like to see it. But you know, friends, that's getting almost a definition of our position, that if it weren't written, it's too good to be true. And so we get this word through the different scriptures. Matthew 7, verse 11. I'll give you the exact reading of that passage I've referred to. In verse 10, or verse 9, he says, Who will you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your own tradition? For Moses, of Mark the 7th chapter, verse 9, 10 of For Moses says, Honor thy father and thy mother, and whoso curses father or mother, let him die the death. But if ye say, but ye say, if a man shall say to his father or mother, it is Corban, that's this sacred word, a gift which I'm offering to God. That is to say, a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by thee, he shall be free. And ye suffer him no more to do aught for his father or mother, making the word of God an uneffect through your tradition. Which he hath delivered and many such like things do ye. Or is this word gift? So we don't need to go on multiplying instances. They're all in the one direction. Every occurrence of this particular word, nineteen times, is bringing a gift to God or to someone. The one exception is Ephesians. It is the oblation of God, the gift which he brings. There can be no other word in this category than this. God has come out and he's brought gifts and we've stood there to receive them. Well, everybody else in the scripture, they bring gifts and God is waiting to receive them. It's almost unbelievable, isn't it? And what a lot hangs on the fact that you don't merely say, oh, gifts, I know what that means. You see, there's about four or five different words that are translated "gift," So it pays, it pays always to search the scriptures and see what God has said because you implicitly believe that when he chooses one particular word he doesn't want you to go mixing it up with some other which have a different connotation. Well now let's move on to further aspects of this teaching. He now comes in verse 9 to the negative statement. It is the gift of God, it is by grace, it is through faith, and it is not of works. Not of works, lest any man should boast. The word of represents the little preposition ek out of. Not always, but in this case. And the word ek out of suggests always origin. This is where it originates ek out of. Well it says it doesn't originate in works. Then you see you want to be watchful because there's another system of teaching which somehow has looked at these words, not of works. Oh, good, then it doesn't matter what I do. I'm going to have a good old time in this world, and then have the best of times in the one to come. Oh, would you say, friend, you haven't read far enough? It's not out of works, but it is unto works. Oh, yes. Works come in their right place, friends. God says you'll never find works at the root, but where you will find them is the fruit. That's what works are called in the scriptures. The fruit of the spirit. So says the scripture. While you're not saved because of your works if you haven't got any you mustn't expect other people to be easier saved because there's no evidence. So in fact sanity you see. Will you now turn with me to the epistle written to Titus? Because this is so constructed that this alternation of works one way and the other runs through the three chapters. <coughs> you notice in the chapter one, it says in verse sixteen, they profess that they know God, but He works. They deny Him. They confess that they know God, but in works, and you generally expect you to deny something in words, don't you? But in works, they deny it. Then you come to chapter 2. Verse 13, 14. Looking for that blessed hope, and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself on us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity, and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. You see, he's stressed, he's stressed in verse 11, the same aspect. For by grace are ye saved. By grace are ye saved. But because you're saved by grace, not of works, it doesn't rule out good works at the other end of the story. And a little further up this chapter too. He wrote to to Titus himself and said, In all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works. So we've got good works that are in the right place, and good works can be in the wrong place. It's like so many things. Water is essential to life, but if it goes down the wrong way, it brings death. And so you've got good works in the wrong place, you get people working for their salvation and the poor folk will never get it. But Paul wrote to the Philippians and he said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Not work for it, but work it out. Develop it, make it grow. And then again in chapter 3, the Titus, Verse 4. But that after the kindness and love of God our Saviour to all men appeared. not, not, by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. You see, not by works of righteousness, but you've only got down to get verse to verse 8 to hear him come back on it. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. So there's an epistle. It's not of works, but it's unto good works, all the way through. And so it is here. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Do you remember how that comes so many times in Paul's writings? Uh, Do you remember the emphasis upon that at the end of the first chapter of 1 Corinthians? He says in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 1, but you see, you're calling brethren. How that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Doesn't say not any. I think it was the Countess of Huntingdon said she was very glad of the word that the little letter M. She was one of the nobility, but she was a believer. It didn't say not any noble, but it said not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of this of the world, as you believe brethren. To confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised have God chosen, yea, and things which are not. To bring to law things that are, why? That no flesh should glory in his presence boast. To fit in the word glory has to do for the glory of God and man's boasting. Two different words altogether. But here we've got boasting again. And if you get to the summing up of the teaching of Romans in chapter 3, he says, verse 33, for all that sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely, that word freely is justified as a gift, as a gift, without a cause, by his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Then the question, where is boasting then? It is excluded. And this word excluded means to put a key in a lock and turn it. Locked out. That's what Paul says about boasting. By what law of works Nay, but by the law of faith. But don't you see, the many ways in which God has had to keep on saying to you and me, lest any man should boast, it shows what we would do, wouldn't it? If he gave us a loophole, we'd be boasting. You know one of the old rabbis' comments on Genesis 1? uh, It sounds a bit strange, but it puts his finger on their understanding of humanity. It says, do you know why God created Adam on the sixth day? Well if he hadn't, he'd have been claiming to have had a share in the creation of all the others. So he left him last. Now that's only a little, little subtle comment, but he it puts his finger on the spot. Well, we post of anything, won't we? You know, that dentist who knows his job, when he's got it out, always I've never seen such pains as this. My, you'd go to him again, wouldn't you? And you tell all your friends, you boast about anything. So, I suppose, if we must boast, and God knows we must, he says, I'll give you something boasting. Listen to the Apostle Paul. God forbid that I should boast, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which I am crucified to the world and the world unto me. So start boasting in Him. That's the character of, of the believer today, who rejoice in Christ Jesus, and has no confidence in the flesh. Boasting in Christ. He won't mind you boasting in Him. And boasting it is sacrificial death on your part. But don't boast in yourself, or in your attainments, or in your merits, or in your service. Don't do it. It, it comes in and spoils. It's like a tarnish creeping over the gold. Less any man should boast. Four. Four is a connection again. Yeaah, it is workmanship. We didn't make ourselves either in the first instance or in the salvation instance. We are his workmanship. We are his work. So, it's no good talk about our works in comparison with his. We are his workmanship. Now, this word workmanship is an extraordinary word because it's come down from the Greek language and now is only used in ordinary everyday use for a poem. Now, to the ordinary person, like ourselves, a poem doesn't look like work, does it? I mean, you sit there, dreaming away, and presently the spirit moves, and away you write yards of poetry. Well, those who've written it, and put their soul into it, they say otherwise. I think Tennyson said that he revised one poem, which is called Maud, a thousand times. And in the meet between the two meetings on Sunday, I took a young friend who's visiting us from Derbyshire in the dinner hour. I took her round the back here of the Morbid station, and among other places, there's the church which is bombed to pieces, but still has the memorial of Shakespeare in the yard in the garden. And there on that memorial, it quotes the words that he so wrote these things. Shakespeare wrote these things that he didn't blot. A lie. And then you may remember the comment of Johnson. all oh, that he blotted a thousand. Because Shakespeare sometimes goes off the rails a bit, as you may know. Oh no, a poem, in the estimated of the Greeks, was something that was delicately and lovingly and marvellously fashioned. Not just thrown together anyhow. Now when someone wants to call you a bad name, friend, you may not like to tell them this but have to yourself the thought I am a poet. God's poet. God's poet. The highest form of literature that the world knows. Here it is translated we are his workmanship which of course is good. The word means among other things to fashion by hand as a potter does the clay. And is used in the Old Testament in that way. There's one passage which speaks about this poem, this handwork, which makes it so intimately personal that you remember in the book of Job, do you? Job is wondering about the problem of resurrection, and feeling out for the truth. And then he says, Thou wilt call and I would answer thee. Thou wilt have respect unto the work of thy hands. Let's go. We are his workmanship. And if he's going to have respect unto the work of his hands in the mortal body that we have, how much more? That gift of grace which has been purchased for us by the Redeemer and has the touch of immortality about him. So we come to the closing verse of this section. But we are this workmanship created. You see, created. It's a thousand pities that when the next word next time the word creation comes, they translated it to make in verse fifteen. For to create in himself of the twain one new man, it should be create. Not really make, but we are a new creation, starting a new creation. So here's the beginning of the new creation. Aren't two good works which God has before ordained that we should walk in them, and we're up against the idea that we've got a determined walk. We're just in the grip of fatalism again. According to the way which this reads, some say, there you are, you haven't got any option, you've got no freedom of choice, you've been foreordained to come to this meeting tonight. So you get no credit for coming because it's cold, you couldn't help yourself, you were caving here irresistibly by faith. Do you believe it? Well, it doesn't matter whether you believe it or not, whether it's God's word or not, isn't it? So the words have to be put a little bit round the other way. At the bottom, I've put it out, when you notice know, for which God prepared us in order that we might walk in them. He prepared us by salvation and the teaching of his grace and the influence of his spirit that we should walk in them. But if we have no option as to whether we walk in them or not, why devote the whole of chapter 5 to telling us to walk in love, and to walk in light, and to walk circumspectly, and not to walk like the others? Well, we might have turned around and say, well, I've been foreordained, I can't help myself. Oh, no, friend. No. Of course, the little child, he doesn't talk about predestination and foreordination. When you catch him munching the apple in the cupboard, he says, The devil tempted me. Well, it's all on the same line. No, no. You have freedom of choice, even if you haven't got freedom of will. But if you haven't got freedom of choice, you can neither be rewarded or punished. So now we've got something which is complete. We are saved by grace through faith, and God has come out and made that a gift to us, an unspeakable gift. Something that you would never have said if it were not written. And then, it precludes as it must all possibility of boasting in self. And then we look and say, but we're the beginning of a new creation. If any man be in Christ, there's a new creature. So it says here, created in Christ Jesus. And there's no new creation outside of Christ Jesus. Oh no, created in Christ Jesus. And the first thing is, unto the very good works that none of us could do before salvation. Just the same as God predestinated the believer to holiness, although we haven't got there yet, but that's in view. So once again we have given this passage, a little examination, and I trust we've seen something to set our minds free, to help us to realise the fullness of grace which is at our disposal, and then, very humbly, to seek that other gift of grace, that we may translate this into terms of walk and witness. Now, this is in the doctrinal section. So you don't get an exposition of what your walk is to be if the Apostle is keeping to his section. So, will you notice that in chapter 2, we have two walks, and that's all. Nothing more is said about it. First of all, we have in chapter 2, verse 2, where in time past, Ye walk according to the course of this world. That's what you once did. And then we have, after salvation, those good works which we have been before prepared to walk in there. That's the walk of the new creation. Well, now, it is. It doesn't expand the walk in chapter 2. But when you come to the parallel passage in the in this structure, over on the practical side, you've got walk running right through it. Chapter 4 opens with the word, walk worthy. Chapter 5 tells you how to walk, three different ways. So, we've got the doctrine and the practice. And that is the complete statement of Scripture. Not originating from works, but leading to good works, so that there should be balance and harmony. May the Lord grant that we, who hear these wonderful things, May also be conscious we need a wonderful gift of grace to enable us to rise and walk in harmony with such a calling.